Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. Every day we learn something new about COVID-19 and what we can do to slow its spread. As news and information evolve, Reset is working hard to keep you connected and up to date. We also want to answer the questions you have about COVID-19. That's why we're checking in again with infectious disease specialist, Dr. Mia Tiramina. She started things off by talking about new symptoms the CDC has added to its list of COVID-19 symptoms. So some of the new symptoms are ones that we had kind of had our eyebrows raised and and had thought about before um, as we were starting to see them over time. Uh, Certainly the sensation of the loss of taste and smell, that's been on the radar for a little bit of time and that's been added to the list where patients uh, can experience in addition to other symptoms and uh, or possibly alone as a symptom of decreased taste and smell. For the most part, it does resolve slowly over time. It's not expected to be a permanent manifestation. And some of the other manifestations that we're seeing even more of now are body aches, more of the flu-like symptoms. In the beginning, we focused so much on breathing and on fevers, but certainly there are patients that have a significant amount of back pain and body aches. And also we're seeing skin manifestations, unusual rashes, discoloration to the fingers and toes, and those can all be a part of the immune system's process of this virus. Well, starting today, Illinois is requiring people to wear masks while in public when social distancing isn't an option. Can you tell us about what types of masks are acceptable during this phase of the stay-at-home order? So for the vast majority of the public really a cloth covering is going to be advised. We still recommend that surgical masks and N95 respirators and the like are are reserved for our healthcare providers where we need those um, the most. So there's a wide array of face coverings and instructions you can find online to fashion a bandana or scarf uh, over your mouth and also to be able to sew a mask out of fabrics uh, in your home. There also seems to be a wide array of uh, social media sales going on, individuals sort of mass producing cloth masks and face coverings that should be worn. Well, let's get to some questions from listeners. We've certainly gotten a lot of voicemails about masks. Here's one from Virginia in Rogers Park. I've seen some advertisements for various kinds of masks, and I'm wondering if there are certain kinds of over-the-counter masks that are better than others. For example, I saw a mask with carbon filter in it. Is that better than any other kind of mask. So is there a specific kind of mask we should be getting? Thanks. Dr. Tiramina? The most important part is going to be wearing a mask that's fitted properly, um, that doesn't have too many gaps around the top, the bottom, and the sides, that's not terribly loose. That is going to be the most effective strategy before getting into any of the materials. And certainly as we you know, talk about different uh, cloth mask materials and different masks being sold commercially, there are ones with single layer, two layers, three layers of materials, various different filtration and fibers uh, that are used for this. And certainly as you step up, adding in filtration is going to weed out some particles and droplets uh, over time. So it is certainly reasonable to think that the more advanced masks may afford more protection, but are not necessarily needed for most. Out in public, the most important part is simply going to be covering your mouth and nose with something that is relatively fitted well. 
Do you have any, any advice around what materials are best to wear? Um, should we be thinking about natural fibers like cotton or synthetic fibers? University of Chicago has actually looked at a number of different common household fibers from polycotton uh, blends to silk uh, to flannel. And again, their conclusion was, was very similar, that the proper fitting is more important than the fabric itself. To really have something that, that is a close fit to your face, you know, within the realm of, of staying comfortable as well. And then uh, when it comes to layering, a single layer is, is probably not preferred if you're making a mask at home. Uh, to use two layers would be uh, excellent. And a lot of these materials can be combined. Perhaps a layer of silk with a layer of polycotton can provide more of a barrier effect than just using a polycotton blend alone. And some masks that are being made out in the community right now may be two layers with an option to put a disposable filter or layer inside where I've heard coffee filters or napkins are being used uh, internally in these masks between the layers to give that additional filtration. I want to understand a little more about the timing of this mandate. Uh, we've been seeing from numbers from the Illinois Department of Public Health that while confirmed cases continue to rise, it, it seems we're hitting a bit of a plateau at this point. Should we have all been wearing masks much earlier over the course of the last couple of months? We, we do like to always play Monday morning quarterback in medicine. We always want to look back and see what can be done differently. And I, I hate to think that this entire pandemic is a, a dress rehearsal for the next big one, whenever that may be in our lifetimes, to go back and, and learn from what we've done right and what we've done wrong. Uh, there is certainly some argument looking back that we uh, could have and should have uh, been protecting ourselves a little better, a little sooner. But you know, with the information we had at the time, we went with what was sort of best with the knowledge that we had. So here we are today, and I, I don't uh, want us to backslide. I want us to continue using the data we have available as to what is going to protect us better moving forward so we can truly flatten this curve and get to the other side. Uh, Dr. Taramina, we've gotten a number of calls about cleaning. Here's a voicemail from Carrie in Winfield. Hi, this is Carrie from Winfield. I have a question for Dr. Termina about COVID-19. Can you explain the importance of sanitizing uh, frequently used surfaces in our homes, like the kitchen and bathroom, how not doing so can spread COVID-19? Uh, thank you very much. Okay, before you answer that question, I actually want to tack it on to the next question we got from Karen in Irving Park. We've been self-quarantined for quite a while now. Can I wash my countertops down with soap and water, or should I be also bleaching and doing that type of thing as well? Thank you. Okay, so let's start with Carrie's question about why it's important to clean countertops and areas in the kitchen and bathroom. Well, Carrie, thanks for your question. We, we've uh, spoken about this before, Jen, as well. We know that the virus can live on surfaces. It doesn't want to. It wants to live in, in a human body or it wants to live in a, in a host. Um, but when someone who's infected with this coughs or sneezes, 
sneezes, it aerosolizes in droplets, and these droplets eventually settle on surfaces. Over time, the vast majority will die off um, over several days, but there have been studies to show that in certain environments, we can still continue to uh, detect the virus many, many days later. So surface cleaning, especially of the high-touch areas, doorknobs, toilet seats, um, computer keyboards, our cell phones, things that we are touching very frequently, those should really be sanitized quite frequently, almost on a daily basis, in order for us to um, try to reduce the spread of this virus from those high-touch areas where we would then touch a doorknob and then perhaps touch our face, touch our eyes or nose, and, and potentially spread this virus. And then to turn to Karen's question about what we should use to wash countertops, she said, you know, they've been quarantined for some time now. Is it enough to use soap and water or should she be using bleach on those surfaces? So we know that this virus just does not like caustic materials like uh, soap and water, which can help to dissolve the shell of the virus. That's why we recommend washing our hands with soap and water. But household cleaning products like Clorox and Lysol, they're going to certainly be capable of of killing off the uh, coronavirus. Um, Making your own products at home with a bleach solution or with a solution that um, uses about up to 70% alcohol uh, could also be done if you are out of household cleaning products or not able to acquire those. The recommendation is to add about a third of a cup of bleach to a gallon of water. Now, obviously, working with bleach, we are going to be at risk of bleaching things we don't necessarily want to bleach, so be careful there. But that would be a very good cleaning solution for Uh, bathroom surfaces and countertops if needed. And same thing with something containing uh, 70% alcohol to make a solution of that. Uh, But I don't know that it's necessary when soap and water for many surfaces uh, can be sufficient as well. Well, speaking of the ways we can stay safe at home, we've been getting a lot of questions about groceries. And here's another voicemail from Karen who we just heard from. I've heard mixed information about Do you wash it with just water? Do you wash it with soap and water? For example, we bought apples. I washed them rigorously with water, but I heard that I wasn't supposed to use soap on them. So what's the proper way to wash fruit? And should I always be peeling apples? And what about grapes? All right, Dr. Taramina. So everything is better than nothing. So I I think that washing with water um, is, is very reasonable. We know that not every single speck of virus is going to be dying off with that. But to the extent that you are able to wash your fruit, that would be recommended. Um, There are certain fruit washing products that can be used uh, that are safe for human consumption, as opposed to using a cleaning product on our our fruits. And whenever possible, um, peeling a fruit is always going to be recommended because we're going to be removing that, that outer layer where you're at a greater risk for potentially coming into contact with this. While we do get a lot of calls regarding fresh fruits and vegetables, regarding groceries, uh, to my knowledge, there has not been a single case of transmission from these items. We know that the presence of the virus is certainly possibly there, but to ingest the virus um, and actually become ill from it would be highly unlikely. Here's a question from Latia in Chicago about jewelry. I have a question pertaining to uh, jewelry. Is it safe to have your jewelry on, like wedding bands and things of that nature, you know, your earrings? Is it good just to not wear jewelry at all? Or, you know, the jewelry you don't take off, you know, how would you keep that clean? Obviously, constantly washing your hands, but does it stay and, like, clean to your jewelry? 
So that's an interesting question. I've heard um, stories about doctors wearing ties and, and being concerned about ties touching areas that are contaminated and, and concerns around that. But what about, you know, our wedding ring or uh, a necklace you just tend to wear every day? Sure, Jen. It would be a, a miss of me to not admit that I outsource this question to my sister, uh, Nina, who's in the Detroit area. She works in a jewelry store and deals with the clientele on a daily basis that have similar questions. I learned as well today that one of the favorable solutions for cleaning high-end jewelry, diamond jewelry, rings, earrings, things like that would be using Windex. And Windex hmm. would have um, a property to it that would be an unfavorable material for a virus to live. You can use a soft toothbrush to get in the grooves of uh, these areas. And then for a lot of other jewelry, silver-based jewelries and things like that, there are cleaning cloths that you can use, but to really kind of get at a virus, you can use Dawn dish soap. It's a very mild soap. And similarly, using a toothbrush to kind of get in the grooves um, of those areas. What is not recommended is to use a caustic material like bleach or uh, rubbing alcohol or something along those lines on our jewelry. And I would remind um, our listeners that when you're washing your hands, um, if you have rings on, um, virus can get trapped beneath those and watches as well. Us in the hospital that are still possibly wearing a watch, um, you know, to take that off and to make sure we're washing underneath it, uh, remove rings periodically at the very least to get some hand sanitizer underneath them and to wash beneath them. Obviously, if we're going to be taking jewelry on and off, make sure the, the drain is plugged. We don't need our prized possessions going down the drain. Um, alternately, if you're, if you're going to be washing your hands frequently or, or working in a healthcare environment, it may be, be reasonable to not wear jewelry on our hands at this time. So let's take one more question before the break. We all know it's important to wash our hands, but what about our face? Uh, we got a couple of questions from Virginia in Rogers Park. Let's take a listen. Hi, Jen. This is Virginia from Rogers Park. We've been told to wash our hands all the time, which I am doing. Should we not be washing our faces at the same time since we touch our faces with our hands? Dr. Taramina, your thoughts? So this presents a little bit of a chicken and egg scenario. If our hands are clean, it's going to dramatically decrease the risk of contaminating our faces. Certainly if there's a situation where you realize you've touched your face and you, your, clan, your hands have not been cleaned for some time, it may be reasonable to wash both at the same time. And the same soap and water uh, could be doing that. But by no means should we need to wash our faces um, every single time we wash our hands. And certainly we should not be washing our faces with any type of uh, product that's not intended to be used on our face. So Dr. Taramina, at this point, many of us have been social distancing for quite a while. A lot of us are getting antsy about being able to see friends and family again. And we have this question from Evanston. My question is about family members living in different households. What, is, what are the thoughts about those members of families getting together in just their homes? So far, we have kept our distance. We are only seeing them outside with distance walks. But we're wondering about uh, if it might be possible to start the process of um, getting together again as family. Thank you. So that's Rosalie in Evanston with a question I think a lot of us are asking ourselves right now about, you know, when we can see family members, when when it's safe. If, if we've been, you know, staying at home for the last few weeks and haven't come into contact with anyone for the most part, is it safe to gather? 
so Rosalie, that's that is the million dollar question. We all want to be able to get together and safely be with our families and friends soon. Um, of course, the official guideline would be not quite yet um, that we still need to maintain that social distancing. And, um, you know, thankfully for technology, we, we do have the FaceTimes and, you know, the Zoom meetings that we've been able to do and see our families and see our friends over time. I would say with caution, if there was a need to or a desire to uh, have a very small group, um, socially distancing within the home is possibly okay. Um, and this would include um, a, a family member coming over for a dinner time or something along those lines where there could be some social distancing. There's not a large number of people in the home. Um, still, there's no reason at this point to be congregating in groups larger than 10, um, as recommended pretty much you know, statewide in, in many states in the country, but I would keep a group even smaller than that, and I would be very mindful of the parties in that group if there was going to be any sort of interaction, that these are not individuals that are per se working in healthcare, working in a high-risk environment. They're not vulnerable in terms of comorbidities or immunocompromise. Um, but if it was young, healthy individuals that uh, a sister or cousin wanted to come over for uh, a dinner that is socially distanced within the home, I don't see that 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 would be a high-risk event. So the summer months are approaching, and this is creating some new questions, specifically around whether or not this virus uh, likes the heat. We know it likes cold, but let's hear Chris's question from Edison Park. Hi, this is Chris from Edison Park. Would it be beneficial to spend 5 to 10 minutes a day in the sun? Vitamin D helps prevent respiratory infection and respiratory collapse. L.A., where everybody has a tan, seems to be doing better than New York. What do you think? Thank you. Okay, Dr. Tiramina, let first let's start with the question about heat and this virus and what we know about whether or not it does well in heat. So the virus is pretty resilient um, when it comes to heat. It, it would require very high temperatures that we would not be able to survive in, in order to kill the virus with heat alone, uh, around 130 to 140 degrees. That being said, there's potentially some benefit from the ultraviolet lights that the, the sun does emit, but we don't have enough data to say how long, how much, and what would be safe. Uh, what we do know is that there are some studies ongoing, uh, but for now, um, simply being outside and, and potentially uh, getting some sunshine should not be particularly harmful. We don't know that it would be particularly helpful in terms of the sun itself creating a benefit. And what about vitamin D? Can that play a role here? So that's an entirely separate uh, concept. We do know that vitamin D uh, does help uh, protect us in some ways. And we do know that being in the Midwest or, you know, as was mentioned, New York, areas that are not necessarily exposed to as much sun, we do have uh, more vitamin D deficiency here in the Midwest and, and places that um, are similar. Because of that, many of us are on vitamin D supplementation as recommended by their doctors. And we do know that some patients, there is a correlation, that doesn't mean a causation, uh, that there is vitamin D deficiency being seen in individuals that are doing poorly with COVID. That being said, I always caution, this does not mean to go and, and super dose on over-the-counter supplements or to start stockpiling or taking things that are not advised by your physician. But it can certainly warrant a conversation if you happen to be vitamin D deficient, an appropriately prescribed and dosed supplement may be of some benefit. 
Is there anything else we can do right now to, to avoid respiratory infections? What's working best is the social distancing and, and hand washing. That's, those are going to be the, the ways that we maintain our health even when it comes to a routine flu season. When it does come to flu season, which gosh, in the blink of an eye, we're going to be there already, it is going to be paramount to get influenza vaccines this, this season. We do not need or want to have simultaneous infections. And to the extent that we are able to protect ourselves with influenza vaccines, uh, it's going to be highly encouraged this year. Is there any research or data around whether there could be changes in case numbers due to you know entering the summer months? We're just not sure yet. We had hoped that we would already be seeing a more significant uh, decline at this point, and, and we're just not there. You know, every few weeks we are sort of recalculating what trends we might see, and we're taking a lead from uh, countries that have had peaks uh, earlier than us and, and what is happening on the downside of their peaks as well. Uh, the hope would be that we will see a downturn of these events and of these cases into the summer months, but it's not necessarily weather related. It may simply be more herd immunity related. We simply may have so many cases by the time we get to the summer months that most people are going to be fairly uh, well protected and the case numbers will drop off somewhat over time. Dr. Tiramina, while the weather is getting warmer, uh, that can also bring an increase in bugs. We have this question. With summer months coming up, can the mosquitoes spread the COVID-19 disease? Do we need to be worried about that? Thanks. That question from Aaron in Lincolnshire. What's your thinking there? Aaron, that's a great question. Uh, the answer is fairly definitively, we do not need to worry about mosquitoes spreading COVID. This is a droplet-borne virus uh, that spreads sort of like influenza. So that's going to be the coughs and sneezing and being in contact with someone who is uh, secreting droplets. Most mosquito-borne viruses are going to be spread um, as a as a blood-to-blood uh, contaminant or, or virus being transmitted in that way. So we certainly need to be mindful of mosquitoes and in the Midwest ticks as well, um, using mosquito sprays and repellents uh, for other uh, diseases that these insects are very well known to transmit, but it is not likely that they would be able to transmit COVID. Now, unfortunately, as we know, COVID-19 is causing numerous deaths. We haven't really talked about funerals and safety what kind of guidance do you have about how families should conduct funerals right now? This is such a, a devastating time to lose a loved one. Uh, we can't get together and convene and celebrate the lives that we are losing um, during this difficult time. Right now in the state of Illinois, with uh, the restrictions that are in place, even a private viewing is limited to 10 individuals or less. Um, the most difficult part about saying goodbye to our loved ones and, and providing support for people who have lost people close to them is we still need to exercise the social distancing. So in an in-person um, memorial service that had even a few people paying their respects, I would still recommend mask wearing, um, no handshaking, no hugging, and that's really hard to do. But I think the understanding is that we we all sort of understand why and to be mindful of that that would be the safest way that we can conduct ourselves um, in paying our final respects should this be an open casket environment there is certainly a tendency to uh, to pay that respect with a one last touch or even 
kissing our loved one uh, goodbye. And that, uh, unfortunately, is not recommended at all uh, as well. There is the theoretical possibility that even a deceased individual can still have virus, um, and there have been recorded cases of those working um, in funeral homes that have potentially contracted the virus from the deceased. So it's that mindful social distancing. There's going to be a lot of online memorials and um, events like that. And then memorials potentially later the summer or in the fall when it may be safer to get those family members together and, and truly properly remember and pay our respects uh, in a memorial service. What special steps are being taken at this point to transport or bury a body? How have funeral homes had to adjust the way they do their work? For providers that are in a, in a funeral setting, they are going to be using universal precautions just like the rest of us in the hospital. Um, the gowning and gloving and masking and, you know, embalming a body is a procedure that is aerosolizing and can certainly generate some of these viral particles in the environment. So they are using the N95 respirators or a different uh, medical grade respirators during body preparation at this time to try and keep themselves safe. And again, the unfortunate limiting of the number of people that they're interacting with and, and being mindful of the social distancing. But handling bodies is going to require um, the same amount of precaution as being in contact with the living. You know, we've been talking about the challenge of addressing this pandemic because scientists are learning about the virus in real time. What have been some of the more recent developments we've heard around uh, whether or not someone can contract the virus a second time? Do we know any more about that? So we don't think that that's highly likely, but we don't know that it is impossible. We do have instances where there are individuals who have documented positive coronavirus tests and symptoms and go on to resolve and perhaps even test negative and then many weeks later become sick and test positive again. We do not know if that is a second occurrence or if it is truly a delayed clearance of the original viral infection. Perhaps our tests are not perfect and uh, having a false negative or a poor specimen documenting that negative early on. We don't think Typically, the virus is going to be lasting five, six weeks in individuals, but time and time again, we are seeing positive cases in individuals that insist they've been symptomatic for a significant period of time. We just don't know. So we have to continue to practice and proceed with our lives as though we are all susceptible. As we have more antibody testing developed, we will see what that means. Um, when someone develops an antibody to the virus, are they protected for some time? for a long time or not at all. Uh, and time will tell in our ability to discern those with antibodies if they indeed have a prolonged immunity to this virus moving forward. We have one more question here from Mac in Andersonville about a family member who passed away. I have a family member who recently passed away from COVID-19 and my family is having a wake for him. It's limited to nine people, and I was wondering what kind of danger they're in from attending a COVID-19 death wake. Your thoughts, Dr. Tiramina? 
So my sorries for your loss. So many people have lost loved ones. Um, You know, going back to that social distancing, anyone attending an in-person wake should be masked. And we really need to limit those uh, close interactions with our loved ones, the hugging, the kissing, uh, the the shaking hands um, during these interactions and trying the best we can to stay, you know, six feet away from everyone that's paying their final respects. Also being mindful that our deceased loved one, if there is an open casket, to not interact with our deceased loved one uh, as they uh, may still potentially have some virus on them. And then good hand washing, of course, um, after any interactions with anybody in in a funeral setting. Well, as I said, we're still learning about this virus, new symptoms that people may experience, the way the virus impacts internal organs. Could we still learn about more symptoms that that haven't been widely reported? Oh, absolutely. Uh, another one that we I didn't mention early on in this conversation was uh, seeing more strokes and more blood clots as potentially being related to the COVID virus. We are now retrospectively looking back at so many different things and ways that individuals may have presented that weren't high on our radar for possibly being COVID related. And now we are looking back and thinking they just may have been. So that list of symptoms may continue to grow and pockets of presentations that we are starting to see more commonly will come to the forefront and will be things that we continue to discuss and look for in our patients. That's Dr. Mia Taramina, an infectious disease specialist with the DuPage Medical Group. Dr. Taramina, thanks again. Always good to be here, Jen. Thanks. And that's today's Reset. For the most up-to-date and accurate information on the COVID-19 crisis, go to 91.5 FM or WBEZ.org. And a quick reminder, we can't do what we do without you. WBEZ is trying to raise $400,000 by tomorrow night. If you depend on the news, the stories, the shows, the podcasts you get from WBEZ, head over to WBEZ.org and click on the donate button and please give what you can. Thank you, and thanks for being with us today. I'm Jen White. Let's talk again soon.